0: Well, please turn with me, friends, to the words that we read there in Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. And reading again verses 31 to 34. Luke 22 from verse 31, where Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. I'm sometimes asked the question, what do you enjoy most about the ministry? What do you enjoy most about the ministry? And there are many things that I I love about the ministry, the opportunity, and I don't say this lightly, but the opportunity to study the Word of God and to an intense level with with uh, less disturbance and distraction, and others might have is very much an unspeakable privilege. I I love that aspect of the ministry. But perhaps the thing that I love most, and I hope it's not too controversial to say, the thing I love most about the ministry is pastoral uh, visitation. Uh, I I I love visiting people in their homes. However, some visits can be a real challenge and it's got absolutely nothing to do with the person whom I'm visiting. Instead, it's when I get to the person's home, and you might get to their gate, or you might get to the door, and there's a sign up saying, beware of the dog. And my heart just sinks, and I think, Lord, why, why am I in this rural island where every second person seems to have a dog that we need to be aware of. Those warning signs just leave my stomach churning. Well, this evening I want us to look at Peter and the warning that Jesus gave him, the caution that Jesus gave him. And we're looking at this then under two headings. For those of you who are taking notes, we're looking at a fearsome adversity, and then we're looking at a faithful advocate. A fearsome adversity and a faithful advocate. Verse a fearsome adversity. You see that in verse 31, where Luke focuses on the enemy who is facing Peter. The enemy who is facing Peter. Before going any further, let's situate ourselves in the chapter. In verses 1 and 2, we find the chief priests and the scribes plotting the death of Jesus. Verses 3 to 6, we find Satan entering Judas, who then meets with these chief priests and officers and makes arrangements regarding how he'll betray Jesus. Verses 7 to 23, we find Jesus instituting his holy supper, his new covenant meal, consisting of bread and wine that will point to his death and what it will accomplish. Verses 24 to 30, we find the disciples then arguing among themselves about which one of them was the greatest. Jesus is now just a few hours away from his death on the cross. In a few hours, he'll be arrested in the garden. He'll be condemned to death on the pavement of Gabbatha. He will be hung on the cross at Golgotha, and then he'll be placed in a grave belonging to a man named Joseph of Arimathea. The climactic moment of Jesus' long-awaited work of redemption is now in sight. The finish line is in view, and, but it's also described as being the hour of the power of darkness. And during this dark hour, satanic assaults are going to come against Jesus with full force. But they will not just come against Jesus with full force, they will also come against the disciples of Jesus with full force. And it's at this point that we hear Jesus' very solemn admonition in verse 31. Jesus begins by addressing Peter with the words, "'Simon, Simon, behold.'" Jesus means business, as he uses the name of this disciple twice. He only does this on two other occasions. If you go to Luke chapter 10, you find him cautioning Martha over her misplaced priorities with the words, "'Martha, Martha.'" And then again in Luke 13, he cautions unbelieving Jerusalem with the words, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. There is very much an urgency. There is very much a note of caution as Jesus calls out, Simon, Simon. And it's interesting that Jesus uses this name, Simon. If you go back to John chapter 1, you find that Jesus had given this fisherman, Simon, the son of John, the name Peter, meaning rock. But this same rock-like follower is going to show himself to be a frail, fragile, fickle man with feet of clay. He will show himself to be a man who is lacking in rock-like durability, rock-like dependability. And Jesus therefore says to him, Simon, Simon, behold. Simon, Simon, take note. Simon, Simon, pay attention. And Jesus carries on with these very solemn words, Satan has demanded you. Jesus speaks about this figure called Satan. The word Satan means adversary or accuser. He's mentioned in Zechariah chapter 3 as one who stands before the Lord accusing people, accusing the high priest Joshua. And here Jesus speaks about this figure, this accuser, this adversary, Satan, demanding to have you the the pronoun you here that Jesus uses is plural indicating that Jesus isn't referring to Simon Peter alone but to the whole group of men who have gathered in the supper room and Satan is demanding to have them it is strong language it is legal language it is the language of a lawsuit it's as if Satan has come before God saying to God I want these men and I don't just want these men. I have a right to these men. I have a claim on these men. Because these men are sinners. It's the same idea that we find in Job chapter 1, where Satan comes before God and he demands an opportunity to attack Job and afflict Job, whom he says isn't righteous. God says to him, have you considered my righteous servant Job? And Satan says, he is anything but righteous. He is only following you. He is only faithful to you because he wants what he can get out of you. It's the same idea that we find in Revelation chapter 12, where Satan comes before God and he accuses the Lord's people. And Jesus says here that Satan has demanded to have Peter and demanded to have these other disciples so that he might sift them like wheat. Let's consider that image. In Jesus' day, a woman would have a sieve in her hands and she would sift it. She would shake it violently, shake it vigorously to separate the wheat from the chaff. The fine wheat would fall through the sieve while the the thicker chaff would remain on the surface and eventually be discarded, thrown away to the wind. The sifting was very much a process of separation and Jesus is saying here that that is what Satan wants to do with Simon and these other disciples. He wants to take them and shake them. He wants to tear into them and tear them apart. He wants to pick them off one by one. And once he has picked them off one by one, he wants to pick them to pieces He wants to toss them about in such a way that he will separate them from one another but not simply separate them from one another but separate them from Jesus and the life that is found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And so Jesus takes this moment to lovingly warn Peter and lovingly caution Peter, as well as all the other disciples, that this is Satan's aim for each of them. This is Satan's ambition for them. Satan wants to sift them like wheat. And now, friends, as we consider these verses, we are being reminded that Satan, the devil, is a fearsome adversary. Satan, the devil, is a fearsome adversary. That's what we see in Luke 22. Jesus is telling Peter and those with him that Satan is real. And he's telling Peter and those with him that Satan is more than real. He is also active. He is dangerous. He is doing all that he can to sift them and separate them from him. Jesus wants his disciples to see that Satan, the devil, is a real fearsome adversary. It's a truth that Peter would reflect on later in life. We find him writing to a group of Christians in his old age that that Christians are to be sober-minded. They are to be watchful. Why are they to be sober-minded? Why are they to be watchful? Well, Peter writes, "...since their adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour." And that is very important for us to remember tonight. The devil is real. The 19th century French poet Charles Baudelaire once said, The greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. The greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. And we see that today as people laugh at the idea of the devil, and they reduce him to a a harmless bit of fun, bit of light entertainment. They'll even have their children dressing up as little devils at Halloween and these other festivals. And even Christians don't give all that much serious thought, that much serious consideration to the devil. They don't think of him as prowling around their homes prowling around their schools, prowling around their workplaces, prowling around their church services. I, I kept on saying it to, to the leaders at the Concrete Camp last week, and Alison will probably be hearing this in her sleep, but, and Donna too. The, the devil would be prowling around that wherever we are trying to do a work of God, the devil's there. If the devil was there in the upper room, you can be sure that he will be prowling around other places as well. And here is Jesus, and he's unequivocal, and he's uncompromising in reminding his followers, reminding Peter that the devil is real. The devil is real, and he's not simply real, he is active, and he is dangerous. He's always at work. He is always on the move. He's always launching attack after attack. He is always doing his utmost to prevent and prohibit, hinder, hamper, hold back people from coming to Jesus in faith. That's what he's always about. And when a person might eventually come to Jesus in faith, he is always trying to push them away from Jesus, pull them away from Jesus, probe them away from Jesus. Charles Spurgeon understood this well, and he wrote, the point of Satan's chief attack on a believer is always his faith. Not his body, but his faith. Sometimes he'll attempt to destroy a person's faith by placing them in his sieve of pain and confusion And sometimes he'll attempt to destroy a person's faith by placing them in his sieve of pleasure and comfort. The devil is a very clever creature, he's a very cunning creature. He's a creature who's been studying the human condition for thousands of years and he's been studying each one of us throughout our whole existence. He has a PhD on our physical condition, a PhD on our mental condition, a PhD on our emotional condition, a PhD on our spiritual condition. He knows the areas, friends, where we are strongest and he knows the areas where we're weakest. And he even knows, and this is what frightens me most, he knows the areas where we think that we're strong, but we're actually weak. The areas where we say, I would never do X, I would never do Y, I would never do Z, and he knows how to get us there. He knows the right way, friends, to attack each and every one of us. Phil Riken writes, do you know how much danger you're in? I think of the girl who ran away from God as soon as she went to college. I think of the family that decided that they didn't need to be in church because that's not where God is at work anymore. I think of the man who felt so powerless against Satan that he went back to a lifestyle of sexual sin. The most dangerous thing in the world is to fail to realize the danger we are in. What a statement the most dangerous thing in the world is to fail to realize the danger that we are in. So this evening, let's pay attention to Jesus' word of admonition. And remember that Satan, the devil, is a fearsome adversity. Fearsome adversity. But then second, we have this faithful advocate. Verses 32 to 34 where Jesus now focuses on the faithful friend who is praying for Peter. The faithful friend who's praying for Peter. We've just heard Jesus' solemn admonition. He's singled out Peter, but he's addressed the whole group of disciples, and he's warned them that Satan is wanting to sift them like wheat. He is wanting to separate them from Jesus, wanting to destroy them by separating them from Jesus, and having heard Jesus' solemn admonition, we can move to Jesus' strong assurance. Verse 32, Jesus begins by saying, but I have prayed for you. I love that word, but. It's a word that changes, it transforms a whole trajectory. In Genesis 8, we read, but God remembered Noah. There you've got Noah, and he's in the ark, and the whole earth is submerged in watery chaos, and it seems that Noah's just going to be bobbing about in that ark forever and ever, and then it says, but God remembered Noah. Or in Genesis 12, we read, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh. You've got Abraham, and he's, and he's pretended that his wife Sarah is his sister, and Sarah's found herself in Pharaoh's palace because Pharaoh has found her attractive, and it seems that the whole promise of the world being blessed through the seed, the line of Abraham, is now in jeopardy, it's hanging in the balance, and then we read, but God afflicted Pharaoh. Or in 2 Samuel 11 we read, but the thing that David did displeased the Lord. You've got David and he's committed adultery with Bathsheba, covered his tracks by orchestrating the murder of her husband Uriah, and he thinks that he's got away with it. And this is the man who's going to be the line through which the Lord's people will be blessed. And and then we read, but the thing that David did displeased the Lord. Or in Ephesians chapter 2, we read, But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. There you've got Paul, and he's writing down the condition of every person before Christ. They were dead in sins, dead in trespasses, objects of wrath, following the prince of the world. And then, But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. And here Jesus says to Peter, But I have prayed for you. Satan's demanded to have Peter, demanded to have these other disciples so that he might sift them like wheat, separate them from Jesus. But Jesus has prayed for them. But Jesus has interceded for them. But Jesus has pleaded to his heavenly Father for them. And Jesus says, but I have prayed for you singular. That's incredible. Verse 31, Jesus says, Satan has demanded to have you plural, addressing the whole group. Now Jesus says, verse 32, but I have prayed for you, singular. Jesus hasn't simply prayed for this group of men in general. He has prayed for each one in particular. Prayed for each one by name and prayed for Peter especially. And Jesus says that he's been praying that Peter's faith may not fail. Note he doesn't pray that Peter will be spared from Satan's sifting. He doesn't say, Father, keep Satan from that, keep Peter from that sifting. Neither does he pray that Peter will not fail while experiencing Satan's sifting. Instead, he has prayed that Peter's faith may not fail while experiencing Satan's sifting. Peter may faint. Peter may fail. Peter may fall apart. Peter may have very little left. Peter may be left with nothing more than a thin thread of faith. But if that thread of faith is still touching Jesus, united to Jesus, connected to Jesus, then that is enough. And so Jesus has prayed that Peter's faith, however weak that faith might be, that Peter's faith may not fail. And he carries on and says, and when you have turned again, Jesus says that Peter will turn again. He'll repent. He'll once again be found going in the right direction. Isn't it wonderful, friends? I hope you can see it. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus doesn't say, if you turn again. He says, when you turn again. Jesus is confident that, yes, Peter may fall apart, but that will not be the end for him. That will not be the last word on him. When you turn again. But he still isn't finished. As he says, when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. Peter will return. Peter will repent. But he will not simply return, he will not simply repent, he will be restored and he will be used once again in a gospel ministry of strengthening his brothers. In John 21, Jesus will recommission Peter with the words, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, take care of my people. Or in the book of Acts, we'll find Peter taking the lead in the church as the church goes out with the gospel, that word of salvation, to Jerusalem first then to Judea, then to Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. And if you go through these early chapters of Acts, it's Peter who's taking the lead. And then even later in the New Testament, we find Peter writing encouraging letters to Christians who feel like they're living in exile. Christians who are living and feeling like this world isn't home. And Peter is writing to encourage them. Jesus is saying, Peter, you are going to fail. You're going to fall apart. But your failure isn't going to be the final word on you. Because I have prayed for you. And I wish we could end there. But in verses 33 and 34, we move from the strong assurance to the startling attitude. Throughout the Gospels, Peter's always talking Some of them say to the high free that he's a bit like a girl I had in my year at school. And all the way from first year to sixth year, she was putting up her hand, always the first to answer. And you'd just be rolling your eyes thinking, here she goes again. And that's Peter, always talking. And once again, we find that he's unable to keep quiet, even during such a serious, significant moment. Look at verse 33, he's just heard Jesus' solemn admonition, just heard Jesus' strong assurance, and now he exhibits this startling attitude as he says, Lord, I am willing to go both to prison and to death with you. Peter really believes that he has enough resources in and of himself to remain faithful to Jesus even as the fearsome adversary approaches. It's really the Titanic of all testimonies. Peter is looking Jesus in the eye and he's saying, Lord, I will never sink. And the iceberg's already underneath him. Lord, I'll never sink. I'll never fail you. I'll never fall apart. And there's the iceberg. You know, it's so easy for Peter to make those strong impassioned statements in the upper room. Surrounded by the other disciples, men whom he didn't really think that much of. If you go through the gospels, you see Peter has got this somewhat superior attitude, thinks that he's some, somehow better than them. But it's going to be far harder for Peter when he finds himself alone, when he finds himself in the chill of the high priest's courtyard. When he finds himself surrounded not by other disciples whom he thinks that he's stronger than, but rather surrounded by men who hate Jesus with a passionate vengeance. And Jesus responds to what Peter has just said by delivering a sobering reply to the proud peacock. The proud peacock who's strutting around in front of the other disciples. Look at verse 34. Jesus doesn't argue with Peter. He doesn't say, whoa, 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 whoa! wait a minute, Peter. He doesn't say, Peter, Peter, don't you remember when you started to sink on the water when you took your eyes off me? There's none of that with Jesus. He simply looks Peter in the eye and he sadly, gently, firmly says, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. That's all Jesus can say. Well, as we consider these verses, friends, we're being reminded that Jesus, the Lord, is a faithful advocate. Jesus the Lord is a faithful advocate. That's what we see here in Luke 22. Jesus is telling Peter and telling those with him that Satan is demanding to have them so that he might sift them like wheat, might destroy them. He's been telling them that Satan is doing his utmost to separate them from Jesus and the life that is found in him. And now Jesus tells Peter that he has been praying for him and praying for him so that his faith may not fail. Jesus has been praying so that Peter's failure as a disciple will not be the last word on him. Jesus has been praying for Peter so that he will turn once again and strengthen his brothers. Jesus wants his disciples to know that he, their Lord, is a faithful advocate. He's one who prays for his frail Feeble, fickle people again and again and again. And I think that's so important and so encouraging for us to remember tonight. Yes, Satan is a fearsome adversary who wants to sift and separate every Christian from Jesus. Yes, Satan is a fearsome adversary who wants to destroy every single Christian but Jesus is the faithful advocate who prays for his people at his Father's right hand. And he's the faithful advocate who prays that their faith may not fail. He prays about the chronic pain of his followers, that they will not stop trusting in his goodness. He prays about the troubled marriages of his followers. That they will not stop trusting in His love. He prays about the challenging financial situations of His followers, that they will not stop trusting in His care and His provision and His providence. He prays about the discouragements of His followers, the dark nights of the souls that His followers may find themselves in, that whatever happens, they will not stop trusting that He is near. He prays about his followers when they backslide, when they almost, as it were, would make a shipwreck of their faith, that they would know that there is a God of grace, that there is a second chance, that there is a way back. J.C. Ryle, and I know he's, as Murdo says, he's a good friend of Myrtle. And J.C. Ryle writes this, the continued existence of grace in a believer's heart, Is a great standing miracle. His enemies are so mighty, and his strength is so small, and the world is so full of snares, and his heart is so weak that it seems at first sight impossible for him to reach heaven. The passage before us, Luke 22, explains the safety of the believer. He has a mighty friend at the right hand of God. Surely that should give you cause for optimism this evening. To have a mighty friend at the right hand of God. This is good news that we have before us tonight. Jesus is more than a crucified Savior, He's the one who's risen, He's the one who lives. And he's not just risen, he's not just the one who lives, he's the one who loves to make intercession for his people as their ascended saviour, as their great high priest, as their faithful friend who will not fail them, will not forsake them, will not turn his back on them. I was recently reading about John Kennedy, the famed minister of Dingwall Free Church, and on one occasion he was preaching at a communion service in Thurzal. And he was preaching on this text from Luke 22. And he said this. He encouraged every tempted, tempest-tossed soul in caithness or elsewhere to lay all its weight on this gracious advocate, all its guilty yesterday, all its sinful today, and all its unknown tomorrow. Every tempted tempest-tossed soul and caseness, lay its weight on this gracious advocate, all its guilty yesterday, all that's sinful today, and all its unknown tomorrow. This evening, friends, let's pay attention to Jesus' word of assurance. And remember that there is a faithful advocate for those who are weak, a faithful advocate for those who are wayward, a faithful advocate for every tempted, tempest-tossed soul in Barvis, in Lewis, and in elsewhere. And the only question that's before us is this. Have we laid our weight on him? Have we laid our trust on him? Have we laid our faith on On him. All our guilty yesterdays put on him. All our sinful todays put on him. And all our unknown tomorrows put on him. I don't think any of us would have the strength to leave this building tonight if we felt we were going out in our own strength but we're not going out in our own strength. If you are a believer tonight, if you are a Christian tonight, you are going out knowing that you have a faithful advocate, you have a friend, you have a Jesus who is praying for you moment by moment at the Father's right hand that your faith may not fail and And if you came here tonight and you wouldn't have called yourself a professing Christian, what's holding you back from him? What's preventing you from closing in with such a faithful advocate, such a friend, this Jesus? Well, let's close. By singing the words of Psalm 121, Psalm 121. Sing Psalm's version that celebrates the keeping of this God. I to the hills will lift mine eyes, from whence doth come my aid? My safety cometh from the Lord, who heaven and earth hath made. Psalm 121, Scottish Saltire version on page 416. If you're able to stand for this singing, please do so.
1: I to the hills
0: Father, thank you that you are the one who is a helper and a keeper of his people. And we thank you and bless you for the words that we've been able to consider this evening from your word, for the reminder that there is this faithful advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that that is the only comfort and confidence of the Christian, not our faithfulness, but his faithfulness. And we pray that each and every one of us tonight, however old or young we might be, would leave laying everything on this Jesus, all our guilty yesterdays, all our sinful todays, and all our unknown tomorrows, that our faith would be leaning on him and on him alone. Thank you that he is the one who doesn't simply make intercession for the likes of Peter, but we are told in your word that he is the one who makes intercession for all his people, And that when they may find themselves not knowing what to pray, not knowing how to pray, and even when they may find themselves unable to pray, even when minds have perhaps been damaged, even when they may find themselves at their weakest and at their most vulnerable, where there is nothing left in them to even make a prayer, that he is still praying for them. Encourage us with those truths we pray. Impart us with your blessing as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.